This is Buffalo, What's Next? I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Dave D. Boat. If ever there was an issue that demands more discussion now, the racist massacre at Tops Friendly Markets on May 14th is um, it. You know, America has a long, deep, rich history of racism brutalizing black communities. But where does it go from here? What does our community need? We must work and teach our children. What issues just aren't being addressed? As long as we keep doing the same thing, we're just sitting ducks for the next mass shoot. That's all you can say. This is a new program. Every weekday, we'll set aside this hour to hear from the community about issues that can no longer be held back. We need to make a concerted effort in our nation, in our institutions, and yes, in our families. I'm host Bridget Jaipal Valenza. Coming up in our show today, Dave Debo speaks with Reverend John Sullivan about a community push to bring Wegmans to the east side. He also talks with activist Miles Carter about his work with and for the TOPS workers. And later, Jay Moran brings in longtime resident Cliff Bell to discuss the latest plans to bury the Kensington Expressway and restore a neighborhood. But first, we're here with Keisha Douglas, TOPS customer and community resident. Keisha, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You were actually in TOPS on May 14th. I can't even begin to imagine what that was like. How are you? How are you? So-so, I guess. Trying to make it through every day. It's really, it's hard, but I'm doing it. I appreciate you being here and willing to talk to us in what has got to be just an unimaginable time for you. Yes, thank you. Um, Some of our audience may find your story difficult to hear, as it deals with the shooting itself. So we just caution anyone who may be sensitive to hearing firsthand witnesses from that day. Take me to the afternoon of May 14th. What, what brought you to Tops that day? I needed a juicy juice. A juicy juice. Yes. I had went to Tops on Harlem earlier that day and, um, to get a juice and they didn't have it. So, you know, throughout the day I did my running and then I had dropped my Auntie Nene off at, at home. And on my way to my next uh, spot that I was going to, I was going past Tops on Jefferson and I said, oh, well, I'm gonna run in there and see if they have my juice. So I get in there and they had one bottle of the juice that I drink, just one bottle. One left. And I was like, oh, it was meant to be, I was happy. So I proceeded to, well, I had a choice between self-checkout and line checkout. I mean, you know, self-checkout or go to a cashier. Mm-hmm. I opted to go to, ca- to register one because he didn't have any um, customers. So as I was getting in line, I mean, getting to the register, I put my juice down and the cashier at register two said to the cashier at register one, which was my cashier, how come you keep getting customers with one item? Then I keep getting customers with multiple items. He, she laughed, he laughed, then I laughed. 
in the process of me laughing, that's when we heard pop, 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 and then everybody stopped. Some people got down. We heard pop, pop again. Uh, for a second, I thought about getting down, but then I decided to, you know, run to the back. And once I started running, I never looked back because I didn't know if I was going to be shot in my back and I didn't want to see anything behind me anyway. Um, I made it to the back and I made it to the cooler. And there was a young lady that I had followed into the cooler. She had went to the left and I had went to the right. There was an employee inside of the freezer who told me to come in there with him. And um, he got down. He was kneeling down. I'm assuming that he was calling um, 911. And in the process of him calling 911, there were people running past the freezer and out the back door. And I decided because there was still gunfires and it was just getting louder and louder, just seemed like it was getting closer. So I decided to run out the back door with the people that was running. And we were running up Riley Street and I was scared. I didn't know if I was going to be shot in my back running up Riley Street. And there was a young man, and thank you, I don't even know his name, but he opened up his door and he told us to come up into his apartment. I was the first one to make it to his, his apartment, and as I was going up the stairs, uh, my legs gave out on me, and I just prayed to God, let me make it to the top, let me make it to the top. I got to the top of the stairs, I got into his kitchen, I sat on a stool, and I just screamed, and I cried. I called my brother, and um, as I was talking to my brother, there was a, another woman up in there. She was hysterical because she had been separated from her daughter. And she didn't know what happened to her daughter. She wanted to go back. And, you know, the young man let us stay in his apartment until the shooting stopped. And, um, and the police came. And once the shooting stopped and we heard the sirens, a lot of, you know, some of the people started leaving to go back down. Um, I was one of the last to leave because my legs really wasn't working yet. I had to get my legs composed back. But um, once that happened, I proceeded back to the tops to the parking lot to get my vehicle. And as I was walking back, that's when I seen the man that was shot by the black car and then the first woman. Um, she was shot and then the other person and as I and it was a firefighter who came and turned the man over by the black car I guess to check his vitals as I was walking back to my car once I got to my car that's when I seen the suspect at that time he still had on his goggles and his hat and right before they put him into um, the car they took his goggles and his hat off and that's when I said a white boy did this and I just, I just screamed. It was, it was, I mean, I've seen dead bodies, you know, but they've been embalmed and, you know, in a casket. But seeing those bodies laying there, and honestly, had he waited two minutes, I would have been shot because I would have been walking out the door with a juice, you know. And that two minutes just sticks with me. And, it, it you know, it, it, it messes with your head. And with me being physically unharmed I feel like we've been forgotten about where they the, the dead they talk about the dead and my heart goes out to their families the wounded my heart goes out to them but again we were in that store too and I just feel like we're not counted as as an injured party do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. Are, um, are you not, has there been no assistance for you? I mean, even sort of the, 
the most basic of trauma triage for you? As far as what's going on, as far as like victims services and stuff, yeah. it's so much red tape and you know, they 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 have to verify that you were in there and all of this extra stuff. And I just feel like at the end of the day, okay, it's been over 30 days. And I, I did my application May 24th at the Resource Center. Mm-hmm. Okay, and the only reason why I remember that was because that was the first day of my counseling. And um, I haven't heard anything from them. I called them um, on Tuesday. And I still haven't heard back from anyone. So right now, I mean, Felicia Brown, she's been helping. And, you know, there's been a few other people that's been helping. But and I mean, when you go to the resource center, basically, they're talking about heap. You know, well, we can give you heap. We What about basic money for your gas, money for your your pets? You know what I'm saying? Things like that. I was working before that shooting. Okay, I went back to work that Monday. I couldn't stay. I went back that Tuesday. I couldn't stay. I tried to go back to work. And here I am. But I'm the one that that's not spoken about. You know, the city or the community, they're taking care of everybody but the physically unharmed ones. Okay, I wasn't shot, but I didn't come out the way I went in. Okay. And... I really think that the survivors who were physically unharmed, I think we really need to get together because we're at the bottom of the list as far as who they're going to take care of, okay? When the shooting first happened, they had all this stuff going on on Jefferson and giving out food and everything. How many of the survivors do you really think went back on Jefferson? Really? I, I, I mean, I'm assuming that you have not been passed. No, that area. I, no, I did go back once with my best friend because I was trying to find the house that uh, the young man had let us in right. to. But that was it. And believe me, being over there then was my anxiety was getting the best of me. And, and it made me feel even worse because I couldn't figure out, remember what house I was at, you know, because I really would like to thank that young man in person because he opened his door when he didn't have to. You know, and it was a bunch of us that ran up into it, that he allowed to come up into his apartment. So that's part of, I think, maybe the testament to the east side, though, right? Yeah. That they do help when it is critical. Right. But we shouldn't have to have something so critical for us to come together. But again, we're, we come together, but we're helping all the people, we're helping everybody but the people that really should be helped. I mean, okay, the resource center, I received the, a letter in the mail from them. They wanted me to fill out a little piece of form, little piece of paper with my name and address and, you know, and if I was inside a tops or in the parking lot. But then they had it if you were at East Utica and Maston or some one of those. And it's like when the shooter came to Buffalo and he got out of his car, he didn't aim for anyone on Landon. He didn't aim for anyone on Riley. And he didn't aim for anyone on Jefferson. He went straight for tops. And now I'm hearing that they want to compensate anybody that was within a mile radius of the shooting. And it was like, what did they do? They ran when the shooting started. No one tried to help us. But you want to compensate them? 
I mean, this is Buffalo. We've heard gunshots here and there. Okay. So people talking about they're traumatized now because they've heard gunshots. It's not the first time you've heard gunshots in your neighborhood. But because there's funding, now everyone's traumatized. You know, I'm not sleeping at night. I'm on meds now, something I've never been on, you know, but I'm not being counted as the 514 fund. You know, Mm -hmm. they already said the highest money is going to go to the deceased family. Then it's going to be the wounded. And the deceased, my heart goes out to them. They're at peace now. They are. But what about the people that's still living? that's living with this every single day. I can't go to the store by myself. I have to have someone go with me. You know, what about me? What about the other ones out there? You know? I would say that, you know, this platform definitely has ears. And so, you know, that's really, truly the question that we have for anyone who might be listening, who could assist in this situation. Why is there so much red tape? What is the holdup? Why is it taking so long? I feel like you're a double or triple victim Mm -hmm. here. Mental health. That's all you keep seeing on on TV is mental health is something to take serious. Mental health. Mental health can stop you from working just like a physical injury can stop you from working. But no one is counting the the mental status of what we're dealing with, okay? Um, no one is reaching out to the people who made it out physically unharmed. They're reaching out to the families of the deceased. They're reaching out to the wounded. But they're not reaching out to the rest of us. And we've had support group meetings, and I really do feel that all of the victims who made it out of there physically unharmed, we really need to get together and let our voices be heard. Because this just doesn't make any sense about how they're treating us. We're like a non-factor. I mean, we were lucky we made it out. Blessed that we made it out. But our trauma is not being taken as serious as the ones that were wounded or the deceased that of their families. Our our situation is just as serious as theirs. And mm. we're not being counted for that. In in essence it's also just as dire because the trauma, the anxiety, the everything that comes along with being the victim of a violent crime. Mm-hmm. Um comes with its own share of mental health issues certainly mm-hmm. and that does cause physical physical pain physical mm-hmm. issues and physical barriers to continuing on life as you knew it before right. or life as as you need to now remake it uh into into what you need as you move forward mm-hmm. um there are some folks out there that deny this event even happened um or they say the entire thing was staged that doesn't make any sense do you have anything that you'd want to say to them 
go on Jefferson and see the building. Talk to the victims. I mean, it was real. I wish it wasn't real. I mean, I, like I said, I went in there to get one bottle of Juicy Juice. And my whole life has been turned upside down for it. So believe me, I wish it wasn't real. I don't, I don't like feeling like this. I wouldn't, that, that means if it wasn't real, then the dead would still be here and the wounded wouldn't be hurt. But they are. So it happened. Do you have anything to say to the shooter? Would you? He's 18. Now. He, how, can he, how can a person at 18 have so much hate in his heart at 18? I mean, maybe if he was in his 40s, maybe it'd be unjustifiable and you could understand it. But at 18, I don't get it. And I spoke to an attorney, which I won't say his name, but um, speaking to him, he basically told me that I don't matter because I wasn't shot or wounded. Yes, and he told me that any attorney that would take my case would be stuck with it and they wouldn't make any money off of it. And I asked him about uh, his parents, the shooter's parents. Because uh, my best friend Daphne had said, um, what about their homeowner's insurance or something like that? So I was speaking to this attorney about that because his father or his family should be held to some degree because his father bought him the gun. You know, so where's 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 he being held accountable for it? You, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, there's account, an accountability issue. Right. He's 18 and whoever... You know, in New York State, you're responsible for your child till 23. He's 18, so his parents should be held accountable too, just because his father was stupid enough to buy him that gun. I mean, who buys their child a gun like that, really? Some people certainly believe it is their their right. It is their right to to own a, a, a gun. But it's also their right to be responsible. And as their his parents would say, well, because of the COVID, he didn't have any human contact. Okay, well, if you've seen that he was going through some things because he didn't have any human contact, then why would you buy him a gun? It's as simple as that. That's just stupid. Now you bought him a gun, and now all of these innocent bystanders have to deal with the aftermath of you being dumb buying him a gun. What do you want to see happen for the victims, living victims of this crime? What would you like to see? What is your ideal? I want them to be taken care of the way that they should, uh, uh, like with uh, mental health counseling they should have counseling free for as long as they need it without going through their insurance but we don't we have to use our insurance right now so I mean I just think that any survivor should be getting whatever they need to to heal that's how I see it I mean I I'm thankful that the community came together and you know gave away the food and had the McDonald's on ferry and, you know, all that extra stuff. And that was nice for the community. But again, what about the survivors? 
How many survivors really went back to Topsaw, you know, to get free food? Keisha, your story is heartbreaking on several different levels. Um, And it is certainly a point that, as a newsroom, we definitely need to follow up with. Uh, I thank you for being here and, and having the courage to to tell your story um it just un- unbelievable on so many fronts for for me um but we'll help you sort that out thank you well can i just say one more thing and as far as the funds that they have out there the applications and all of that stuff, they're going to make it so hard for everybody to get to it and complete it. I already know, you know, they're not going to make it easy. And the people that they have sitting on this 514 fund, and they're, you know, basically it says that they get to decide if you're going to get anything or not. So if they choose to say, well, I don't believe you were there, then they're not going to. And it's like, who are they to make that decision. Do you understand what I'm saying? Who are these people on this 514 fund to make that decision without talking to us, to talking to the victims? No one sat down and said, okay, well, I want to get all the victims together, all the survivors together, and we're going to discuss first what's going to do with this this money. Okay, no one said that to us yet. They're making, I, we just received letters stating that they're going to decide on who's going to get what. The deceased is going to get the most and, or get the highest percentage, and then they'll decide on the rest. So they're making that decision for us, and it's. I don't think it's right. I don't. And again, the deceased, my heart goes out to them, and, but they're at peace. I'm not. Keisha, thank you uh, for joining us today. <clears throat> You're listening to Buffalo What's Next. I'm host Bridget Jaipal Valenza. Up next, Dave Debo speaks with Reverend John Sullivan about efforts to bring Wegmans to the east side. Stay with us. It's one thing to love public media, but it's a special thing to support it. Consider this. If you've got a car you don't need anymore, or you've got one that's simply too expensive to repair, arrange to donate it to Buffalo Toronto Public Media. It's easy for you. Pickup is free, and it could be worth hundreds of dollars in support. Here's how to get started. Go to WNED.org slash vehicles. Sometimes we miss our morning alarm, then we miss our morning news, and the whole day is off. That's when you can listen to the WBFO Brief Podcast to catch up on the day's news and get back on track. Find it every weekday wherever you get your podcasts and then like and subscribe so you never miss the award-winning journalism of WBFO's news team. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And this is Dave Debo. You just heard Keisha Douglas talk about how 
In a lot of ways, she feels that certainly the wounded victims are getting attention, certainly the deceased are getting attention, but that there's another group of victims out there that need a little bit more attention. For this segment, we'll bring in someone who wants to bring some of that attention to their plight. Miles Carter is with us for a little bit here. Miles, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, Talk about what it is you want. You, you last week had a rally and a news conference to try and bring attention to the plight that Keisha and others who were there that day face. Talk about your demands. What do you? What would you love to see? Well, I mean, I, I think first and foremost, um, this, things are happening. So, like after that press conference we had, um, our first demand um, was to have all of. The, well, one of the man, demands was to have all the items returned. Uh, that were taken as evidence. Um, so the victims that we know, um, or survivors, I like to refer to them as, they, they started receiving their uh, phone calls from the district attorney's office and they were able to come and uh, collect their property. Um, so I think that that, that you know, happened. What, uh, what kind of property was taken? Um, just not necessarily taken, but people, you know, lost their items. People were running oh, out of the, the store. Oh, the things that they were actually you know, there to purchase. Backpacks, gotcha. wallets, all phones, that. ID, okay. all that stuff. Um, you know, people need their identification. You're talking about... Um, you know, young black men now that don't have their identification on them. Yeah. What about when they run into law enforcement? Yeah, that could be an issue. Yeah. Just just once or twice at least. <laughs> right. So it's like, you know, that, that's what people were dealing with. And it took over a month to make that happen. Um, and then, you know, you still have tops, you know, on May 14th. None of those transactions were refunded. Um, you know, people lost their items. People lost their lives. People, you know, were injured in many ways, including Keisha. And, you know, Tops hasn't even refunded the transactions that occurred on May 14th. They're still profiting off of that day. So you want cash and checks and ID and personal property all given back? All, all given back and, and, and refunded the transactions that occurred that day. And, you know, and obviously we need, we need help for people like Keisha. Like, you know, she's, she's talking about the red tape that exists with things like victim services. You know, it's been over, what, six weeks now. And uh, victim services called her just to interrogate her about whether she's a victim or not. Mm. You know, and then what's next? Yeah. Like, that, that's, that's really the, a good question. I imagine, too, and, and Bridget touched on this in the last segment. There's obviously people who were grieving, and there was obviously a lot of community mental health effort. But I wonder if there was any mental health efforts targeted to these survivors that you're talking about. Well, we had to find it for them. You know, she 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 uh, mentioned Felicia from Blur. You know, Black Love Resisting the Rust. They've been an excellent resource for uh, mental sure. health, and that's where I've been referring everybody to. So, you know, I've been communicating with a lot of the survivors. You know, from that day, and, and you know, even Tops employees didn't have their own independent mental health. They were going to group sessions with everyone else, and it's like, you know, I get that, but you know, what are you doing to build yourself back to being whole again? Because you've experienced something that's taken a part of you. Are there Tops workers that still have issues because? The scenario I picture is the store shut down the very next day or that that very day. Yeah. Um, Tops is saying they want to rebuild in the neighborhood and obviously rehire those people, bring them back. But it's been six weeks. You just said that six weeks without a paycheck for those workers. Well, so I, I believe they are getting paid. Oh, so, okay. so they they are receiving paychecks. Um, All right. They 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 have to check in and say whether or not they're ready to go back to work every week. Um, some of the employees have started, you know, working again um, already. And um, I believe for those ones, they're receiving their, their you know, paycheck and then whatever they're mm. making from their hourly. But, like, it's you're talking about a minimum wage job. You know, the customer service managers are making minimum wage. So it's like, you know, what's going on here? It's like, you know, obviously people are struggling. So even even when they were working, it wasn't enough. 
devil's advocate, isn't it natural for the attention to be on the deceased and those who were actually uh, wounded that day? Um, is this just a a thing that happens that they're not that the groups you're talking about aren't being paid attention? I mean, not for me. Okay, maybe Tell for me others. More. Yeah, no, like, I, that's, I appreciate that. I, I don't, I don't understand like how that is even like the people were affected. You know, the people were running for their lives. People saw. You know, the one of the stories I heard from a survivor. You know, she, she was she, she hid herself in her clothes. You know, um, her, her, she was laying on top of her daughter so that her daughter mm-hmm. wasn't exposed to this man. And, um, you know, this is um, uh, Aaron Saunders was the one that um, defended her. Um, you know, the uh, her foot was outside of the clothes. He stood in front of her foot. <clears throat> wow. And, um, you know, the guy's approaching and uh, Saunders starts shooting at him. And she says she sees the bullets just falling off. Right. Mm. And then, you know, they're just not affecting him. And any the, the whole thing happened where where he shot him and, right. and he died and martyred is what yeah. I say. Salter was killed and the 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 accused uh, had body armor on. Right. So uh, he saw her laying in his pile of clothes and, you know, he moves the clothes with the gun barrel and he burns a mark in, in her scalp that's still there today. Um, you know, she she she's a she's a victim and a survivor. You know, but she's not included in the list of all of these fundraisers and everything else. And she was physically harmed that day, you know, and and, and there, there are stories like that all over the place. Um, and, you know, she she talks about when she comes she, when she came out of the break room that she eventually hid in. Right. I can't tell her whole story. It'll take the entire segment because it's really deep. Um, she came out of the break room that she ended up hiding in. And uh, she said when she was walking out, there was so much blood in the air that you could taste it. And the, and the room was just. 95 degrees she said you're just sweating as you're walking out it was so hot right like there's people that were not physically injured that experienced that as well and like that's a that's a vivid memory now that i have in my brain right and i wasn't even there Hmm. so it's like they're they're affected what do they need obviously mental health support and we touched on that uh, should there be a community fund of some sort? Uh, I mean, I, I'll be the one to say it. They need financial services. Everybody likes to think that that's some type of taboo statement to dance around. And, you know, even with victim services taking so long and, and their maximum, I think, salary to replace is $30,000. Like, you're talking about people, you know, Keisha's a caseworker. I, I would imagine she's making more than $30,000 a year, right? So she, she, she's now got a reduced lifestyle. She's not alone in that, you know? It's like, you know, at $15 an hour, that's pretty much $30,000 $30, a year, mm. right? That, that's minimum wage, yeah. right? They need financial services, like real financial help. And one of the things you, you had at that news conference is the idea that uh, surviving victims and their family members really need compensation from their employer, so they can take the time off to deal with this. So we, we've gone back and forth on this with a few people, either their employer or tops. Somebody needs to be making sure that these people can stay at home and receive a paycheck equivalent to what they were making before and extra so they can continue to pay for things that they need to do uh, above and beyond what they had to do before now to become whole again. So it's like nobody's nobody's doing that for them. And even with the Survivors Fund, and as Keisha was saying that, it's it's already been like predetermined in back rooms how it's going to be allocated out. And, and you know, you see this meeting coming up on July 21st. It's a town hall, right? Um, but I think it's more so to kind of explain to people how they're going to continue to dole out the services or, or financial component of that fund. Tell me more about that. That's a state fund that will be distributed to... No, that's the one that was uh, the, the Compassion Fund. Okay. The all one right. that um, essentially, I believe the way it worked is all these other organizations put their money into that fund as opposed to 
giving it directly to uh, the individuals that were impacted. You know, and, and there is a, a moral issue with doing that um, because all of these fundraisers were done for different reasons, right? Some of them were for the families of deceased, some of them were for the injured, some of them were for those individuals that were in tops and affected, some of them for the employees. So then to put all that money directly into that pot and then kind of divide it up as you see fit is, is not morally correct, right? And, and If the money was given with certain intent to go to person X, Right. And then it gets pooled and distributed to X, Y, and Z. You've got trouble with that. Wouldn't anybody? Yeah. I mean, that, that that's a problem. But I think that we're looking at it because it's a black community. We've got a problem with just handing checks and cash over to black people because I don't know what everyone else's holdup is. Maybe it's a fear of black people now being in a position of being better financially than what they were before. And America is just a, a corporation race. I don't, I don't know. But people need money in their hand. And that, that there's no other way around it. And waiting till October isn't even a good answer because Keisha has to pay her rent every month. What is the solution? To just crack that fund open and distribute now? Uh, crack that fund open, distribute now, start a new co uh, community fund, the state coming in and removing the red tape and going and knocking on Keisha's door and handing her a paycheck today. Like, there, there's all types of solutions that are out there. You see, like, it, it wasn't that hard to get, what, $600 billion of our tax dollars or $600 million of our tax dollars to go to the, uh, the, the stadium. Mm. You know, they, they, I'm sure they got their financial services and their cash rolling immediately so they can get that progress started. I mean, how hard is it to get victim services to give that little thirty thousand that little thirty thousand dollars a year yeah. directly to these victims immediately? Have you had any luck, any results from the state? Um, are you the voice in the wilderness here? <laughs> I mean, I, I, thanks WBFO NPR for being on point with this as well because I, you know, I don't feel like I'm in the wilderness. I think that there's a lot of people out here uh, bumping their heads against the wall, like what's taking so long. Um, you know, I think that that's a real question that the community is asking. Um, and I think that, you know, you allowing us on here to express that today is, is, is a reflection of like, you are probably wondering yourself, how are people being assisted? You know, I don't, I don't feel like I'm alone in this. Um, I feel like the government's doing what the government does. Right. I feel like these corporations are doing what these corporations do. And I'm, I'm feeling like America is operating on the same racist mindset that it's been operating on since before its inception. Let's broaden the discussion, because when people talk about disinvestment in the east side, I think that's maybe one of the perhaps artificial, but one of the defenses that this is just the system. This is the way the system is. Uh, there are hurdles to entrepreneurship. There are hurdles to new investment. Your contention is that that is, by its definition, systemic racism. Am I right? Well, yeah. I mean, you look at even Big Trash Day. You know, if, if they're doing Big Trash Day in, in University District, they, they go to the white portions of University District and make sure their trash is cleaned up first. And then they move over to the portion that's contained in the east side. Um, like it's it's visual. I drive over there every single day. I see it myself. Like people have their trash sitting out in the white neighborhoods for one day over on the east side. It's for seven, seven days or two weeks, you know, and it's like that's 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 systemic racism. You know, you're you're, you're looking at the, the streets and the potholes and the sidewalks like that's just one component of it. Like I've, I've got a cross light on on Genesee Street, a cross light on Genesee Street that's been out for seven years in front of a school that we've been opening up 311 request after 311 request and, and writing letters to every single politician in Western New York. And nobody's even come over to fix it. They keep telling us it's going to be done, you know, in, in, in a month. And like this is basic. Why, why does that happen, though? We have a city with a black mayor that wouldn't necessarily make it racist, would it? I mean, he's one person in an entire system, 
and and I, I think that that's the problem. He's one person in an entire system. Uh, you know, I'm not. My 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 issue is is that it's happening because these people are black. Because we are black, right? Because because that that's that's the problem that's going on here, and there's there's no other there's no other answer to that. There really isn't because it doesn't just happen in Buffalo. It happens in Chicago. It happens in Baltimore. It happens in Tampa, Florida. It happens in, in, in Compton, California, in Los Angeles. It happens everywhere where you have black populations. It's, it's, it's the reason they built the, the, the 198. I'm, I'm sorry, the 33. Yeah. You know? And, and, and even Jillian Hainsworth said that the reason they put it underground is so that the white people that were driving downtown Buffalo didn't have to see the didn't black people. Didn't have to see neighborhoods. Yeah. Didn't have to see black people in those neighborhoods. Yeah. Right. That, that, that's that's the staunch racism that exists not only in, 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 in the heart, but even in city planning. Coming up a little bit later in the program, Miles Carter, by the way, is here, a community activist. One of his latest causes is for the survivors who were in tops. But coming up a little bit later in the program, we will be talking about the Kensington. There was some movement on design work on that yesterday. The scoping sessions, they call them, the chance for community input to help design the construction project uh, has started. We'll talk with. Cliff Bell, a community member who's who remembers walking through that neighborhood before there was a Kensington, and he is an advocate, obviously, for restoring that in his neighborhood. We'll talk with him in just a little bit. But but Miles Carter is still here, uh, and the little bit we have left, I want to I want to broaden it all. Uh, your voice is one of those that rings in my head. I remember the day after the shooting, there was a memorial service at the Macedonian Church on East North Street. And various speakers came up. You were one of them. Uh, and, and you had what, what they later said was truth to power, a little bit of a rant on how there are so many issues in this community that really, really need to be addressed. One, one of the things that is running in my head, again, your voice, we don't need affordable housing. We need home ownership. Yeah, I mean, you, you see that even now with this push to change the name of the East Side, um, and and you know the these slumlord rental conditions that properties are kept in, and and all other types of things, and it's like you know a, a huge component of that is is that people don't own their homes, um, and and you want to build wealth, you want to change a neighborhood, you want to build a community, like you people own their homes, like that that's how it goes, um, you know rental assistance and and all of these affordable home or affordable uh, housing solutions, it, it makes corporations, it makes nonprofits, it makes churches richer, but it does nothing for the actual people. Money doesn't, and this is part of the, the discussion with the tops victims, money doesn't trickle down, you say? Money's not trickling down. And and again, it's it's because there's a fear of, of giving stuff, right? Of, of But that's exactly what's happened throughout America through its entire existence. It's, it's But they're not giving it to, I mean, literally, America gave land to white people. You just move here and set up a tent, you got to keep it, right? And like, this is what built your wealth. Like, we don't have any of that. The land that we were supposed to get got taken back and given back to the, the slave owners. Like, it's, it's like, but that, that's, we're constantly fighting. We're constantly fighting. And, and, and Keisha now has to fight by herself because, you know, the NAACP isn't coming to her side. Right. Um, the uh, legal aid is not coming to her side. The, the, I don't know all the names of these organizations that are run by black attorneys, but nobody's coming to her side to say, OK, you were injured in tops that day. You can now take civil suit against 911 for not taking your call seriously, against tops for being injured on their property, right? Against these gun manufacturers. Like, no, nobody, no, no legal services are coming to her saying that, right? And we've got all, 
but the NAACP is on the is is the chair of the the uh, the fund that was raised for the survivors, right? And it's like I'm I'm sitting here thinking, was that done to keep him off of her side? I don't know. But Keisha needs help. She needs legal aid, right? She needs somebody to come in. She needs an attorney, right? She she needs financial services. And it's like, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to hijack the no, question, no, but that's, like, that's, that's okay. <laughs> but that, that's where I go because it's, it's, it's like I, I can't even think about how we're building a grocery store now or how we're doing all of this. And, and it's like, yeah, I, I get it. It's a food desert. It's a food desert. But we got everybody over here giving out free food. We got doing all this. Great. Right. But now Keisha, right, her individual self is affected. Tyzea Stewart, another victim that was sitting on, on grocery carts when, when Gendron walked in there. Right. Another survivor. Right. He's by himself. Right. We've got a couple organizations helping, but mostly it's just here's gift cards. A lot of the premise of this program, I think you you didn't hijack the question. The premise, I think, is to hear those voices, to have people say those kind of things. And the theme that emerges is easily one of systemic racism. Right. How do you and we only have a little bit of time left. We'll have you back. I promise. Um, How do you fix that? Is it is it. Really, I've heard some people say it's it's a disease. You fix the symptoms first, and bit by bit, it'll it'll happen. Fix housing, fix disinvestment, fix the potholes, fix the issues you're raising with Keisha, and by doing that, ultimately there will bit by bit be an erosion of the systems that you don't like. Is fixing the sim- symptoms enough, or is there a bigger disease there that needs to be treated? And I'm asking it somewhat rhetorically, but but go ahead. I mean, America's terminally ill. There's there's no reversing what's going on here. And it started from the day that white settlers came here and took the land from the indigenous people that were occupying it. Like, that's the day that it started. And that's what this country was built on. Like, how do you fix that? Um, Like we started with with cancer on day one. So like and then you you, you talk about the atrocities that's been committed against um, black people, my people, since we've been here. Like, I don't I I attended a few. a few sessions at the Meriwether Hotel or Meriwether Library on um, on uh, on Jefferson of you know it's Black History and we're talking about you know cattle slavery, you know chattel slavery. You know they, they used to put women in stalls just like horses, and then like this is where the idea of a buck came in, and and that man would come in and have relations with each one of those women that night to get them pregnant. Right. And that child, the day that they were, well, that woman, she worked in the fields all the way up until that child was born. And then when the child was born, she was back in the fields in eight hours. Right. No, no time. That baby was taken, maybe given to somebody else to feed. Like, like that's a sickness. Like, that's a disease. Like, this was happening to people. Right. And, and like, you're talking about how do we fix that? Like, we, Lincoln tried to fix it. And that's why, that's why I think maybe, again, to, to, to take your cancer analogy. Um, treat the nausea, treat the tumor, but the cancer is something bigger. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and that's where we're at. It's like, you know, all of this, you know, affordable housing and all this other stuff is, it's literally just, it's radiation, you know, it's, it's it's chemotherapy, you know, it temporary fixes, it it might give you a little bit longer, you know, that's what we're dealing with. Like, but honestly, we, we need so much more and, and, and there, there's still an attack you know, it's not just systemic. There's still an open attack, you know, on our people. There's police brutality that exists in the city of Buffalo that people aren't talking about, right? And and I get it. 
like people don't want to focus their attention on that. But like, you know, I was there. I came to the scene at Tops, you know, and and you could see the officers standing there with their arms across their chest, just staring blankly at the people there, keeping them from getting into their family. People wanted to get in that day. People wanted to get to their family. People wanted to make sure they were okay. You know what I mean? And, and the officers just standing there with a blank look, no concern, no empathy, no nothing, just standing there staring. And it's like that that's a reflection of, of how they treat people in, in, in our communities. You know, and it's 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 more than just systemic. That that's real staunch racism. Is it racism if they were holding that same line in front of a, a white crime scene? I almost wonder if it's not just what cops do. I don't I don't think so. I mean, maybe. I, I, I don't know. I, I've never been to a crime scene yeah, of, okay. of white people like that. And it's like, I, I can't answer that to say, OK, maybe it's maybe it's just that. I mean, but Uvalde, they saw the same thing. You know, yeah. they, they you know, families trying to get there. It took how long for them to even go in there and, and get those get get the gunmen. They were outside for, what, 90 minutes. I don't I don't even know the real answer there. It's like there's so many different reflections. But like there, there's the, the bottom line is, is that police are killing people in our communities here in Buffalo. Police are beating people in our communities here in Buffalo, right? That's happening, right? There, there's real racism that exists like that, right? Redlining still exists, right? That's 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 not systemic. That's that's racism, right? Uh, like we love all of these banks that are in Western New York because they provide jobs, but there's a couple of them that have actually been fined by 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 New the York New York State, York State yeah. for 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 practicing redlining in Western New York, and this is like 2017, right? So it's like that that's still happening. Right. You have these education systems that are underfunded and, and not getting proper pro- proper attention. Right. And in, in, in black communities. Right. And, and, you're, and you're talking about, again, in a situation where you have predominantly white teachers coming from suburban communities to educate black children. It doesn't work. The, the cancer analogy, I think, applies, because if we go to some place like, I don't know, Roswell and say, hey, cure cancer, that is such a multifaceted thing. Is education alone the silver bullet? that kills the cancer. If, if it's a, a collection of all these systems, what can we do to change the mindset that creates the systems? And what can we do to change the mindset that creates the systems? I don't think there's any, like, I don't. It's, it's kind of like asking, hey, let's just cure cancer. But there is no single individual way to do that, is there? We're, we're, in, a, we're in a country where we're black and indigenous people are not the majority any longer by design systemically. Right. And, and, and by design, racistly, like it, it, it happens. And, and like that's what that's what we're dealing with. And we're asking now a uh, majority of white people to, to share what they have with us. Right. And, 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 and to let's participate in this together. But they're benefiting off of our suffering because we provide them cheap labor, because we provide them rent in their in their in their houses that they don't want to fix up. Right. Like the, like how. We we just need to kind of focus on us when it comes to that, and like I don't I don't think that changing everything systemically is 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 even remotely possible because we're talking about we we got to take the entire jail system down, right? We got to take all these judges and re and and put new ones in that have understood and learned something new because they're still operating on the 1980s and 1990s and 2000s that they came in on, right? But they won't admit it. But we give them a pass because they're white women, right? And they're a minority too. I don't know how to answer yeah, that question. Yeah, again, I, I keep going back to the cancer analogy. Maybe um, cure colon cancer, but not uh, prostate cancer. Maybe cure lung cancer, but not uh, bone cancer. Uh, I, I, I seriously wonder if this analogy is correct, if we can't just knock out little pieces of it. You're talking about knocking down 
the entire thing. Well, I'm just talking about getting Keisha some financial services. You know what I mean? Because that's where that's that's where my brain is equipped to think. Like I can't I can't rewrite this entire system because there's no fixing it. Right. And like you just said, like, what am I going to do? Like take a bulldozer and just knock it all down by myself. I'll, I'll, I'll be just like those insurrectionists. Yeah. Right. No, I'll, I'll focus on Keisha. And, you know, I'll make sure that she's taken care of. I'll focus on Tizea Stewart. I'll make sure that she's he's taken care of. You know, and I'll, I'll, I'll focus on, you know, the, the, the survivors um, that, that we have in our community. I'll focus on on the things that we need in our community. And, and, and really, like. That's where my heart is, you know, and, 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 and I feel like there's not enough of that. Because everybody wants to cure cancer because that's the cool thing to do, right? Nobody wants to actually take care of the person that's got the broken toe. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> Miles, thanks so much. We're going to have you back. There's a lot more to discuss here, obviously. But I appreciate the, uh, the ability to, to share your time today. I appreciate thanks it. Thanks an awful lot. Coming up next, we did say we would chat with Cliff Bell a little bit out of Kensington. Uh, sometimes I, I think of, I think it was David Letterman who always say, we apologize to the guests for running long. We ran long today. We will get Cliff back on the program. There is one other segment, though, I really uh, would like to uh, bring in right now. Um, imagine what it would look like if there is another supermarket in the neighborhood, something other than Tops. Reverend John Sullivan's doing that imagining. He's pastor of New Cedar Grove Life-Changing Church. He joins us to talk a little bit about the effort they're starting there to maybe get things underway. Reverend Sullivan, thanks very much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. Tell me about this new effort to try and get some new different grocery store into the east side. What we're doing with clergy members as well as small grassroots organizations, we're coming together and we want to ask for a Wegmans, right? I believe that is something that should be one of the options, right? We know the benefits of having access to quality um, groceries, right? We know the benefits with education, with benefits with health and then security with the communities. Um, so we're putting a proposal um, and a big ask to have a Wegmans to, um, to be one of the spots that will headline our communities. And you have specifically approached Wegmans or are you just preparing this coalition to do so? We're in the preparation. We're gathering support. We have a good, diverse base of people and more that are signing on every week with this conversation that um, more than just a food giving giveaway, we need something more sustainable. And yes, we are thankful for the African-American heritage and our brother Alex Wright, who received funding. Um, and I think that's beautiful, great work for that, as well as Drea Newark, right, with Feed Buffalo and the work that they're doing. But we also feel that we are worthy of an option, right? A plethora. And so we're right now we are just gathering a conversation and bringing together our research, our relationships, so we can have a good axe on um, some of the leading grocery chains within our community, uh, within the region, um, which being Wegmans being um, the top. Do you have a plot of land in mind? Yeah, we have, we have many, and that's something that we have different ideas, but I believe that's something that we are looking for uh, collaboration with the city, right? We're looking for collaboration with our local development to have this, a serious conversation, right? And I think one of the, the frustration parts, I think, when it comes to the community is that first, we have to convince participants that the east side of Buffalo is worthy of it, right? And I think that has been the issue. Um, there's been a narrative that, hey, the east side doesn't have money. And I believe that is not a accurate narrative, right? People on the east side have been traveling to get food uh, for years now. 
Um, unfortunately, we haven't had anything of quality in a while that we can actually go into our own neighborhood and our own backyards to get it from. So if the community is signed on um, to spend our finances, we want some options of some, some chains of restaurants to partner up with, with the community dollar and say, hey, listen, it, it is money here. It is worth here. Um, that you do have the community support here. Um, so I think that's where we're at. I believe that first uh, we have to convince, unfortunately, and this is why we need partners to help us, we have to convince the chains that, yeah, this, it's worth in the black dollar. It's worth in the east side of uh, Buffalo. If there was some economic rationale that would make great sense for Wegmans, wouldn't they have already done it by now? The way this our city been affected by the geographic um, just issues, right, obstacles that reinforce the disparities that plague our communities, one of that being is this narrative, right? We have a narrative that is easily believable. You know, the, there's just crime, so we can't do business. We can't invest, right? Um, there's not enough money to invest, right? So I believe if that if you continue to listen to that narrative, which I believe is a false narrative, there will be too many obstacles that you will see that would keep people away, keep from doing business within a community. But I believe, again, I believe our community is saying, no, that's a false narrative, right? We, we participate in, in pretty much the success of many other um, food, food, malls, galleria, whatever the case may be. The, so I believe that if you listen to the false narrative, of course, you will have that, that old notion that there's not, it's not worth it here. But if you actually listen to, uh, to see what's going on within this community, I believe that every grocery store will find that it is worth investing. And not only that, we are also a growing, diverse community. Uh, we, the, the east side is, no, is not just one economic group of people, right? We are diverse. We are growing diverse. We are more diverse with that economically. So I believe that if you listen to the false narrative that there's not there's no money here, <laughs> you won't. But that's but again, that is false. For, forgive me for being so blunt. Is the false narrative a racist one? Yeah, I, I believe that race contributes to it, right? If you look at the geographic um, issues that, that exist within the east side of, east side of Buffalo, when we look at the, um, the, the the separation of of resources, as well as the separation of race within the east side of Buffalo, and the challenges that the community is left to try to figure out on their own, um, it, it's tough not to look at race. Right. Uh, one thing that we have to agree on is that the tragedy of what our city just experienced with the tops that was motivated by race. This, this community was targeted because of race, right? So I believe that if this tragedy, it was, we shouldn't call it a tragedy, right? Because I believe it, it's, a, it's, it's the consequence of a, of a bigger picture. But what happened recently to Tops, it should hopefully, we're prayerfully, that it should allow the city of Buffalo to say, hey, listen, first, we do have a race issue within this community. And for this to be the only <laughs> grocery store within this community, we have underserved this community. And this is a highlight that race has to do with this conversation. Yes. So, yes. So race 
yes, that is that is imperative of that. We we have to be honest. Yes, there there's a, a racial disparity here, right? Of by this community been targeted as the black tops, the the black grocery store. How come? Why is an entire <laughs> um, section of a city is relegated to a black grocery store? Is the plan to find a site, get the city on board? and then sort of serve it up to, say, Wegmans on a silver platter? Is there an incentive there, or is it just knocking on Wegmans' door saying, please come here, here's the facts, We'd like, we want you to be here? Wegmans is, it should be one of the many conversations that um, communities should be having. Communities with collaboration with the city should be having with uh, um, the grocery store leaders in our neighborhood. Um, so I do believe that the city should be working out some type of some incentive, incentives that can make that a little bit more easier. Um, but the community is ready to get behind of anybody who's willing to put their um, their money where their mouth is, right? Put their their partnership, right? Their reputation. They want to make a long-term commitment to this community. Um, and also get the incentive that we are paying people. We are people that spend money. What's your time frame? Uh, right now, hopefully, we, 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 we need something done within the city and the, uh, the grocery stores and within our communities. We need something cemented within the next 90 days, within 90 days, right? We, we cannot continue to allow our cities to, our, this city, to go without, right? And this, and hopefully the urgency is that, hey, listen, we need this now. Some type of development commitment. We need some type of city commitment. Uh, we know that the budget is being poured into the city. We, we don't want this to be um, thrown on the back burner, right? So we need investment. And this is part of the investment that the community has been asking for. We need investment in grocery store incentives for grocery stores to, to invest in the, the east side of Buffalo. Uh, we need um, investments in small grassroots organizations and community work projects that, that are working to heal the community. So, yeah, I believe that we need within 90 days. I think I think that's reasonable. And to be plain, this proposal, this request goes forth, regardless of whether the tops on Jefferson reopens. Yes, if if the tops reopen, reopens on Jefferson, we do we cannot look at it as a a win for the east side of Buffalo. We have to look at it as we the east side will still have a disparity. We will still have a a major problem that needs we still will lack quality equitable um, access to food. So whether what happened with tops, we still need options. And I think our, I think that's that's a reasonable request. Reverend Sullivan, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. I appreciate you. Reverend John Sullivan, pastor of New Cedar Grove Life Changing Church. On Monday, we'll present an encore episode. We'll be back with you on Tuesday, July 5th, with another program. We will absolutely continue the discussion here in the wake of May 14th. That's the promise we make here at WBFO Buffalo and WBFO HD1, WOLN Olean, WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station. Thanks for listening.